0: There's something that those of us who've worked in newsrooms for a long time talk about, and we talk about it a lot. Privately, over text, on the phone, in restaurants and coffee shops, in code, looking over our shoulders. And that is, what is happening to our business? Why is there so much that we now can't say? Why are so many things off the table for discussion and debate? How come we rarely speak to conservatives, or centrists, or libertarians, or heterodox leftists, or the working class? Why have we become less adversarial toward government and corporations, and more hostile toward ordinary people with ideas we don't like? Why do we have an endless appetite for statues coming down and comedians being cancelled, but little interest in diving into the housing crisis, the opioid epidemic, the explosion of gun violence? Why does all of this social justice talk feel so elitist? And why are so many people that progressives are supposedly fighting for just not that interested? Why are so many people tuning the media out? All of this is a way of saying that in recent years, and especially during the pandemic, what it's like to work in media has changed dramatically. It's harder and harder to report facts and reflect views that do not align with the progressive political project. It's harder to even raise these points in story meetings. This has to do with a lot of things, big picture forces, that I will be exploring on this podcast. It also has to do with something called the Overton Window. That's basically the window of allowable thought and speech in mainstream society. And I can tell you, it is narrowing. I can also tell you, this is terrible for democracy. We have big issues to confront. A pandemic, a climate crisis, an epidemic of deaths of despair, a politically polarized populace, growing wealth inequality. We cannot possibly come together and confront these things and find solutions if we can't report honestly on them, and if a growing portion of the population is simply shut out of the dialogue. We have to widen the Overton window. We have to start listening to those people with whom we do not agree. Most of all, we have to stop having conversations in private. We have to start having these conversations in public. Lean Out is an appeal for speaking freely. Batya Unger Sargon is one of the voices out there leading the way. She's a deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. Her section is home to some of the most robust debate in America. Batya is also the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy.
1: White liberals, many of them quite affluent, have become more extreme in their views on race than Black and Latino Americans.
0: There could not be a more perfect book to kick this podcast off with. Bad News is deeply researched and brilliantly laid out. Batya argues that the true divide in America is not race, but class, that this great awakening we have been witnessing is driven by white, affluent liberals, and that it ultimately serves their economic interests. With that, here is my first episode of Lean Out, featuring the one and only Batya Ungar-Sargan. Batya, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Oh man, Tara, I am so, so honoured to be here with you and to be here on your inaugural episode of your podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for doing this. And, you know, I think you are the perfect guest for our first episode of this podcast. As as you know, I think your book is one that I have been waiting a long time to read, and I'm excited for listeners to hear about it.
1: Thank you so much for saying that.
0: I want to start with a quote from the book. I'm going to read this to you because I think it really sets up our discussion for today. You're talking here about the woke worldview. Journalists who dissent from this worldview have learned to keep their mouths shut or face massive public censure and humiliation, or even lose their jobs. And those jobs are few and far between. With the journalism industry collapsing in on itself, half the size it was just 12 years ago, the pressure to keep your job and not offend is immense. But it's not journalistic ethics that has become the measure of a journalist's worth, the deciding factor in whether or not they have a job. It's absolute obeisance to the woke worldview. And it's not just their fellow journalists who are pushing this view. It's their publishers who have recognized a rapacious market for wokeness among the affluent liberal audiences they court. For listeners who don't know, what is woke in the way that you're speaking about it here?
1: It's such an important question, and I'm always so grateful to be given the opportunity to answer it. You know, the word woke started as Black slang in the 70s for being aware of state-sponsored racism. And I am a lefty, so I clearly think that that's really important, although increasingly there's no partisan divide over that anymore in America so it's not woke to care about police brutality or mass incarceration or intergenerational poverty in you know 30% of the communities of american descendants of slaves you know th- th- that's not woke to me anymore even though th- that th- that's the word that it you know it initially started to refer to those things and we have grossly appropriated it and that is a criticism that i accept um, when i use woke what i'm using it to refer to is um, the way sociologists have been using it to talk about a phenomena that started very recently where white liberals, many of them quite affluent, have become more extreme in their views on race than black and Latino Americans. And that is an interesting phenomenon, right? You know, in their, in their efforts to advocate on behalf of vulnerable Americans, white liberals outstripped them in the way that they think about race, which they now talk about in a very academic way. So using words and concepts and points of view that are very alien to the communities that they are allegedly uh, advocating on behalf of. So while you know most pe- you know, people of color understand that we have a huge problem with police brutality and mass incarceration, they also really don't support things like defunding the police, which is a view that 81% of Black Americans oppose. And yet that was The only view that you could see in the New York Times throughout 2020. That is the view that is most beloved by the most affluent white liberals. That's the phenomenon I'm talking about when I talk about wokeness. It's that kind of The flattering of the egos of affluent white liberals, the obfuscation of the ways in which that class has really benefited from skyrocketing, deplorable inequality in America, and the use of a moral panic about racism in
0: order to obfuscate that uh, whole phenomenon. Mm. And you are a leftist. Um, Yes. (laughs) You describe yourself as a socialist you have in the past identified as woke at at what point did you start feeling skeptical (laughs) about this movement we're witnessing
1: yeah where did my deprogramming start you know there's like a whole bunch of you know it happened very slowly and then all at once right like so many things Mm. Um, you know one of the moments that I first remember thinking my god um, my worldview is flawed It was so shocking, Tara. I really couldn't even think about it. I sort of put it aside and was like, this is too damning. I I can't, I have to take a break before I'm willing to confront this. And it was in 2018, which is very recent. I was woke until quite recently. (laughs) Um, I, I remember this study came out from Yale in 2018 that found that white liberals and white conservatives talk to Black and Latino Americans differently. Okay, so they noticed a difference in how white liberals talk to Black people versus how white conservatives do. They found that white liberals dumb down their vocabulary when talking to Blacks and Latinos, and white conservatives don't. And I remember reading this, instantly recognizing my entire milieu in this description, mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, this is so racist but it's not just that it's racist, right? You encounter a person of color and immediately assume that they will be embarrassed. If you use big vocabulary words, so you compensate for that, right? That's obviously racist, but it's a particular kind of racism. It's a racism that stems from a paternalistic desire to help, right? Mm. That I immediately recognized a deep indictment of my entire worldview in this study. And it was so damning that I put it aside and said, I am not ready to confront this. You know. So I remember that experience very clearly. I remember finding out that my rabbi who I worship, who is the kind of person who walks down the street in the winter, and literally if he sees a homeless person, and he'll take off his clothes and give it to them, that he he voted for Trump. And he told me he didn't just vote for Trump, you know, for some reason or another. He loved him. He thought he was great. You know, that kind of had this moment of like, you know, scales falling from my eyes. Well, you know, I know my rabbi is not racist. He's the best person I know. So I know at least one person who voted for Trump who's not racist. Perhaps there are others. Right. Then I found out that some of my friends who are people of color voted for Trump and liked him a lot. You know, so it starts to, you know, it was sort of like slowly chipping away at the the, um, the kind of underlying grammar of wokeness, if you will, to where I've come to see it as a very disastrous dehumanizing Um, and, and dangerous worldview that really precludes the aims that I think a lot of leftists, a lot of liberals, a lot of woke people truly support, which is they want to live in a more equitable society. They've just sort of, you know, misdiagnosed the source of our problem, which is a deep class divide. And they have overgeneralized the actual remaining problems of racism, you know, police brutality, mass incarceration, intergenerational poverty, and the educational inequities. They've overgeneralized Those specific problems to call America a white supremacy, which it certainly no longer is, and to hide the fact that there is huge consensus in the Republican Party among conservatives
0: about the need to address these issues. You, you you talk a lot about class, which I think is so interesting because it's something we are not hearing about at all. I want to go back to um, sort of the early days in newspaper history that you cover in your book. Some of these early newspapers courted working class readers. Tell me a little bit about that and how it shaped the kind of coverage we saw back then.
1: You know, one thing that they had that was really amazing was... Um, they didn't look down on the working class and the poor and advocate on their behalf. Um, The the populist press in America in the 19th century turned the poor and the working class into consumers. And in so doing, they, they truly conferred upon them a kind of dignity. They weren't sort of out there, the way you see today, like um, organizers, um, you know, or people who work at nonprofits who are all from the educated class, sort of parachuting in and speaking on behalf of the people who really need advocacy. These, these papers were built on the idea of working class autonomy, which is something that I think is really anathema to liberal culture today. And, and what they did was um, so basically, the fathers of, of American journalism, people like Benjamin Day and Joseph Pulitzer, they, they they showed up in a New York where really the newspapers were catering very much to the elites. And what they realized was, was that, but there are so many poor and working class people. They're highly literate. America was the first country in the world where, you know, the average person you stopped in the street would be able to read. They were reading a ton of stuff, right? There were pamphlets of all different kinds that, that working class people would spend what little money they had to read because they loved to read and they didn't have a newspaper. And so they created the penny presses, you know, to sell these papers to America's poor and working classes. And in order to do so, they created content that was specifically designed to make the working classes, the lower classes feel seen, right? They, they wrote about them. These papers were by working class Americans, for working class Americans, and about them. And essentially what they did was they created the concept of the public, the concept of a constituency, the concept of, of elected officials being answerable to the working classes. And we've really, really, really lost that. We have today a very polarized media environment, but it's polarized only on behalf of you know rich liberals and rich conservatives and 90% of Americans. The media is just not talking to them or about them or about anything they care about. They're completely checked out and they're increasingly boycotting the mainstream media, just like 54% of Americans boycott the whole political system. And it's, it's really it's really a disaster for democracy.
0: Mm. I want to dig into a little bit of the ethos that we're seeing in newsrooms right now. Michael Lind has some great work on technocratic liberalism and the professional managerial class. And he says basically the politics of that class, I mean, to which we belong, is is, uh, very far left on culture issues and center right on economics. Whereas the working class tends to be you know, farther left on economics and slightly to the right on cultural issues. T- tell me a little bit about how that plays out in newsrooms right now. I,
1: I think he's completely right. You know, the, the woke movement is it is not a class movement. It does not have a class perspective. It is very, you know, you often see it accompanied by ideas like expanding the welfare state, right? The Green New Deal, universal basic income. But these are not pro working class agenda items. You know, an expanded welfare state is not a pro working class policy, you know, working class people don't want to be the the object of the beneficence of of liberal taxpayers, right? They want autonomy. You know, they want to feel like they have jobs that give them dignity, where you can raise a family with one income. You know, like it's it's a very basic idea, but neither side is offering them that. The right is offering them this trickle-down crap. And then the left feel like big heroes when they point out that that's not true. And they say things like, tax the rich, like, you know, we'll we'll pay more taxes. But, you know, that's also fundamentally at odds with what working-class Americans want, which is the dignity of good jobs that pay well, that have benefits, where their their lives are not essentially, they have not been created in order to have their bodies broken at backbreaking jobs for minimum wage and no benefits and not be able to raise a family or get married or have any dignity. And I think fundamentally the idea that we should be paying people off to stay home, which is what UBI is, to not mm-hmm. work, is a way of excluding them from the public sphere and a way of excluding them from the body politic, from the social contract, right? What makes you part of a society is having a job that gives you dignity is building up a nation. And we have literally excised the builders, right? <laughs> the people who, who who are in charge of building, of working with their hands, of, of getting us our food, the truckers, of getting everything we consume into our homes and into our hands. We've totally excluded them from, from everything. You know, there's this, because as you say, you know, the newsrooms are, you know, exclusively populated, really exclusively populated now, apart from a few a few examples by highly educated people, people with a college degree, they have huge amounts of contempt for people who are not educated in the same way, huge amounts of contempt for people who don't have that college degree, you know, who don't have an elite college degree. And essentially, there is this sense that their meritocratic success should translate into political power. And Michael Lind is brilliant on this as well. You know, they, they really have consolidated power. And I, I think that that's really disastrous. You know, of course, of course, I believe that. That every every child who's a budding einstein who's living in an inner city somewhere like get that kid out of there get them into harvard but honestly that really does also beg the question what about everybody else and i feel that we you know the what passes for you know liberal economic policy is like rescuing all of the brilliant talented people so that they get to have lives like all of the white, brilliant, talented people who come from upper middle class backgrounds, right? And it's not a it's not a redistributive model where we're redistributing power so that everybody has a sane, everybody is living a dignified life.
0: Mm. And you you argue that wokeness, in fact, perpetuates the economic interests of, of affluent white liberals. And we're we're seeing massive income inequality, and even more so during during this pandemic. Walk me through a little bit about how you think that happens.
1: Yeah, so it's so interesting. And I think this might be interesting to your listeners because um, it's something I've evolved on. So to me, wokeness proliferates in places where, where you have this class divide, where you have a highly educated elite that has seized control of culture, politics, power, and and now increasingly economic benefits. Um, and, and you need it, but you still want to, you know, you still see yourself as, a, as an affluent liberal as better than the others, right? Be- much better than the, all the racist Republicans, even better than, you know, your neighbors who are also liberals, but not as liberal as you, right? There's like this whole virtuous, um, you know, there's a there's like a, an atmosphere that liberals, you know, exist in where they see themselves as compassionate and virtuous and on the side of the little guy. But if you when you're benefiting from economic inequality in such a deep deep way, it's very hard to then say, well, I am actually playing a role in this. You can't both be the person playing a role, benefiting from inequality and decrying it, right? And I argue that what wokeness did was it gave them an alibi, it provided another scene where they could displace what should be economic guilt onto racial guilt. And of course, you can't do anything about racial guilt except feel it, right? Like there's nothing mm. you can ch- do to change it, right? It's not like political power that you can easily change. Now, I used to think that wokeness, really only went hand in hand with um, economic inequality and that the greater levels of economic equality that you had, the more likely you were, gonna, you were to see this proliferating. But I think Thomas Piketty makes a good point, which explains why it's proliferating in England and Canada and you know, even, even the Netherlands you know, and France, places that don't have the same economic inequality that we have in America. And I think it's because it's really also about class. It's also about the sneering of the educated class uh, at the working class that they are deplatforming, sneering at them, deplatforming them while consolidating power around themselves. And that is something that you're really seeing across the developed world. And wherever you see that, expect to see wokeness because it's a really good distraction and alibi for liberals who are consolidating power, who are increasingly affluent because the economy is working for knowledge age jobs, um, but still see themselves as the good guys, still see themselves as the heroes, still wanna see conservatives as inherently fallen and racist. They will you you'll start to see wokeness wherever you see
0: that. Mm. And you, you can see this uh, play out in, in, in the coverage of, of much of the mainstream media. I mean, we will have many, many stories about statues coming down, about language um, disputes, like very sort of niche stories. But we will see very little coverage of uh, the opioid crisis, deaths of despair, of uh, economic uh, inequality and in in that massive gap, what what do you see when you look at the landscape right now? When you when you look at the trends in coverage, I totally
1: agree with you. I mean, in America, it, it, you know, we're living through a historic rise in murder, which is exclusively being perpetuated against um, Black and Latino. People, children, you know, like, you know, carjacking is on the rise. The people whose cars are being jacked are other people of color, other poor people of color. But there is an absolute taboo on reporting about crime in America because it's not woke. It's considered to be, it embarrasses white liberals to see people of color committing crimes. And so they're willing to sentence the victims of those crimes to keep experiencing them, to keep having their children murdered because they're too embarrassed to read about it and talk about it and platform. Form it as an issue. They'd rather sit there and feel good about themselves and call for defunding the police. I mean, it's absolutely atrocious. It's just, I, I mean, you can hear in my voice probably that I'm so exercised about this. It's unbelievable to me how you can sit there feeling virtuous while sentencing another woman's baby to death you know, a hundred black children were shot last year and most of their names never appeared in the New York Times. And I, I just <laughs> that, how how have we allowed this to happen under the guise of being the good guys? I just I just wish, you know, I wish I, I, I wish this was not the case.
0: Mm, I, f- I find it very troubling as well, and there is a business incentive working in the background here. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, it was a really
1: funny recent example where Chris Cuomo recently was um, suspended from CNN for having participated in his brother Andrew Cuomo's uh, attempt to defend himself against these accusations of groping and harassment, etc. And Chris Cuomo had used his journalistic um, uh, contact and clout and star power to find out information about um, where the stories were along the lines and, you know, even, you know, disinformation about one of the um, accusers. And so he was he was um, uh, suspended. Finally, CNN could no longer handle the shame this was bringing on them. But what's really funny about that story is it was sort of a literalization of a much bigger problem, which is that the media is produced by an elite, a journalistic elite, a highly educated and affluent journalistic elite for another highly educated um, affluent White liberal knowledge industry uh, progressive six percent of the American population essentially, mm. um, and it and and those people don't want to see um, their favorite politicians torn down. Like they're actually okay with the fact that the media is increasingly fawning about you know progressive avatars, right? That's what they want to see. So it's sort of this um, you know this tiny elite which is producing news for itself, and the business model is. It used to be like the business model was based on a mass circulation, right? Um, so, so you would try to report the news straight, so you would get the most amount of readers. And today, because um, the business model is based on engagement, and the most extreme readers are always the most engaged ones, your their business model rewards catering to the you know emotional needs, let's say, of the six percent of Americans who are identified as progressive, who are highly affluent and highly educated, you know, and and it used. To to be like each of the different liberal media outlets would cater to a different part of the nation, right? They would each have their own audience. But now because of digital media, everyone's going for the same six, seven, eight million affluent, highly educated liberals living on the coasts who don't want to see anything compromising about the squad. They don't want to see anything negative about the people that they're lionizing. So um, it, it does seem to be like this, you know, and that's, they make it sound like this is about, about race or about politics or about polarization, but you can see it's really about class.
0: Mm. And and just lastly, I mean, you're an opinion editor at Newsweek. I think you do a wonderful job there about actually having vigorous public debate on issues. How do we move forward here? How do we get more working class perspectives in the debate? How do we get more diversity of thought in the media?
1: Oh man, Tara, that's like the million dollar question. Like uh, the, because everyone who's doing the bad thing is making bank. That's the problem. It's like um, (laughs) they're making a lot of money doing the bad thing. Um, I try really hard to, to, to platform working class Americans, but I just don't see that happening Um, more broadly. They won't even get interviewed without being called racist at some point in articles in the New York times and Um, I think that Americans are really too smart for this and what we're going to see is just more and more of a consumer boycott of the mainstream media, which is what we're seeing. I don't think that's going to change the media, because like I said, what they're all going for is the same teeny tiny little um, elite. But I do think that I do think that Americans um, are tuning out. They're tuning out of the media and they're tuning out of politics. And I don't know that that's such a bad thing.
0: Well, those of us that are out talking to a wide range of people know that there are a huge range of views out there. So I think it's, you know, only healthy for, for those views to start to be aired. And and there's many different ways of doing that. And and there's independent media coming up and, you know, there's, there's people within the mainstream media working towards that in small pockets. And, and, you know, I feel hopeful in some ways. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on. It's a fabulous book and uh, so much to think about there.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really an honor and I'm so excited to see what you do next.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.